never again be used to speak of a free state. They took one of their cannons and tried to demolish the town's hotel, but were not good enough cannoneers to accomplish their goal. They looted homes and buildings and brought terror to everyone they saw. Then, after a night of drunken marauding, the men left, and Lawrence was left smoldering in ashes. The next morning, when word of the raid reached the outside world, a little army of free staters marched to Lawrence ready to do battle. But it was too late. The raiders had sobered up and gone home. The army disbanded, all but John Brown, his four sons, and two stalwart followers. And they started out to Potawatomi Creek, where a number of pro-slavery farmers lived. John Brown should have been only a fanatical madman, but he was more than that. He was dour and grim and firm in his beliefs, and he had the ability to make men follow him. In another time, and at another place, he might have turned out differently. It had started for John Brown 18 years before, when he was young and impressionable and a member of the Congregational Church in Hudson, Ohio. The preacher had talked of the slaying of a newspaper editor in Alton, Illinois, an editor who had talked too much and too often about the plight of slaves. The preacher spoke of slavery, and when he asked for altar call, many came. But John Brown rose up from his pew. Here before God and in the presence of these witnesses, I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery. It was a promise he would keep as long as he lived. He married and had four sons. In the early 1850s, he moved to Kansas, where already border warfare between pro-slavery and free state factions had erupted. Bleeding Kansas became a byword, and he was ready to do his part. He lived in the town of Osawatomi, and after Potawatomi Creek, they called him Osawatomi Brown, and ran him out of Kansas. But he did not mind, for he was working for a greater glory. He dreamed of a slave uprising that would rid the world of the cancerous growth of slavery. And this thin-faced man with piercing dark eyes, grim, stern mouth, and bushy hair would lead the country to redemption. Now on Sunday, October 16, 1859, he was going into Harper's Ferry, Virginia, almost 900 miles from bleeding Kansas. He had his army behind him five black and thirteen white men, and he brought two hundred rifles and two hundred pistols and a thousand lances for the slaves he was sure would rally around him. At the Federal Armory, his eighteen men seized the armory, the arsenal with all its guns and ammunition, and the fire engine house, and took thirteen hostages. His men found the town's baggage master and killed him. But the baggage master was a free black man, and the slaves who were supposed to rise up in rebellion turned away in horror. At the shooting, the townsmen of Harper's Ferry surrounded the fire engine house where Osawatomi Brown's little army had gathered. All day Monday, they kept the raiders pinned down and called for the United States Marines. On Tuesday morning, a cavalry officer from Washington named Robert E. Lee brought 90 Marines to Harper's Ferry, and they stormed the engine house. The officer who led the charge was James Ewell Brown Stewart, Jeb Stewart, a cavalry officer who would die at Yellow Tavern five years later, 
and become the greatest cavalry officer of the war. Ten of the raiders, including two of Brown's sons, were killed, and Brown was cut with a saber and captured. Old Brown, they called him now, was tried for treason by the state of Virginia. He lay on the floor of the courtroom, unable to stand because of his wounds, and heard a judge pronounce the sentence. You shall hang by the neck until you are dead. The hanging would be in Charlestown, Virginia, and there would be no riots, for 1,500 soldiers would be there. Among them would be Thomas J. Jackson, who would be remembered in history as Stonewall Jackson, the man who stood like a stone wall while Union troops swept down toward him at Bull Run, and one of the bystanders in the crowd who would watch John Brown hang was a young actor named John Wilkes Booth. Another was a West Point cadet who would find fame and everlasting glory on a barren hilltop at the Little Bighorn River in Montana, a man Indians would call Yellow Hair, and white men would call George Armstrong Custer. Early in March of 1862, soon after the beginning of the campaign in the West and the fall of Forts Henry and Donelson in Tennessee, both Confederate and Union armies realized the importance of the Tennessee River and a north-south-east-west railroad junction at Corinth, Mississippi. Union armies began moving up the Tennessee toward Pittsburgh Landing near the Little River town of Savannah. By March 29th, some 40,000 soldiers were camped around Shiloh Methodist Church, a small log building near the landing. They were waiting for reinforcements from General Don Carlos Buell's army which was moving south from Nashville. From there, and heavily reinforced, they would march south into Mississippi, attack Corinth, and seize the railroads. In Corinth, 20 miles to the south, Confederate Albert Sidney Johnston, also with some 40,000 soldiers at his command, did not intend to let the Union strike first. Already, he was drawing up plans for an attack against Grant's army at Shiloh. The people around Savannah were mostly farmers. The land was cut up into small family farms, and they grew a little cotton, corn, tobacco, and hay. Many leaned toward the Union, and in fact had preferred to stay with the Union when Tennessee seceded on June 8, 1861. Partially for this reason, General Ulysses S. Grant had established his headquarters in Savannah at the Cherry Mansion, a large two-story, white-columned house at the head of Main Street. Aides and staff officers were bivouacked around the mansion or were headquartered in nearby private homes. The people in Savannah knew that sooner or later, the great armies gathered at Shiloh and Corinth would clash. But for the most of them, the war was still something that would happen somewhere else, and to somebody else. Listen now to the case of the Yankee cousin. On Saturday morning, March 29, 1862, the people of Savannah were going about their daily work. A number of soldiers from Grant's headquarters were out on the street, and several housewives had brought baskets of homemade jams and jellies, eggs and homegrown tobacco to town. Their wares had proven popular with the soldiers, and on Saturdays and Sundays, the town resembled a medieval market. About nine o'clock, people watched a wagon make its way down the street. The driver was a portly, middle-aged man with a white goatee and mustache. 
He was wearing a white suit, and the bells on his horses jangled as they walked. His wagon had a bright red canvas cover emblazoned with large white letters that said, Professor Weaver's Miracle Cure. The man stopped his team at the courthouse and stood up and blew a few notes on a trumpet he carried. As soldiers and townspeople gathered around, he said there would be an amazing traveling medicine show at three o'clock with free music and entertainment for everybody. Three miles south of Savannah, on the Florence Road, ten-year-old Nancy Georgianne Whited and her sister Emma heard about the free show and wanted to go. Their father was working in the fields and couldn't go, but their 16-year-old cousin Wilbur promised to take them. When they reached Savannah, it was almost three o'clock and a huge crowd had already gathered. Professor Weaver had turned the tailgate of his wagon into a stage and was bantering with some soldiers as he tuned his banjo. The two girls managed to slip through the crowd and stood right in front of the stage. The professor struck up a foot-stomping tune called Old Dan Tucker and was hardly through when he began juggling potatoes at first two and then three, then four, while he told jokes. Then, without dropping a potato, he stopped and looked out over the crowd. Folks, I know every one of you has ailments and aches and pains. You may have corns or rheumatism. You may have weak livers and you may not have enough energy to get you through the day. Maybe your wives and children are suffering too and you may not even know it. This tonic I have here is the most amazing elixir known to man. It will cure your aches and your rheumatism. It will cure bad blood and gout. It cools fevers and warms the shakes. And the most amazing thing about it is that it only costs a quarter. Folks, think about that. Just a quarter. Why would you suffer one minute more? Why would you let your loved ones go through agony? Step up and get your bottle of Professor Weaver's Miracle Cure now. Folks, get two bottles. It's only a quarter. Now, me and Emma didn't have any ailments, but we sure didn't want to taste that elixir. It cost a quarter, though, and we didn't have any money. So we started looking for Cousin Wilbur to see if he had any. When we couldn't find Cousin Wilbur, I grabbed Emma's hand and we went up to where some soldiers were standing around a tree. We stood there hoping somebody would let us taste that elixir, but nobody did. It was me who finally got up enough nerve to ask a soldier who had a lot of stripes on his sleeve if he'd let us have just a little sip. At first, he wouldn't. But when we kept begging, he poured just a little bit in a tin cup. It tasted to me a lot like Uncle Ellis's moonshine, and we didn't like it. But a lot of the soldiers must have. They were buying two or three bottles and drinking the elixir just like it was water. When the professor had sold all his elixir, he told everybody that he'd go down to the army camps at Shiloh Church, Sunday right after church, and give a free show there too. Me and Emma went to get Cousin Wilbur so we could go home, but we couldn't find him anywhere. The soldier with all the stripes said he thought Cousin Wilbur had gone away with some soldiers, 
so we finally just went on home by ourselves. When we told Mama and Papa about the professor, my little brothers and sisters started crying and wanted to go too. Finally, Papa said they'd take the wagon the next Sunday and we'd all go to Shiloh so everybody could see the show. The next morning, Uncle Jess came over to our house to see where Cousin Wilbur was. He said he hadn't come in last night, so Uncle Jess went to town to look for him. Uncle Jess came back after a while, mad as a hornet. Cousin Wilbur had signed up with the Yankees and was gone. Uncle Jess said Cousin Wilbur had drunk so much elixir, he got drunk and he didn't know what he was doing. It wasn't so bad that Cousin Wilbur had joined the Yankees. A lot of people here did that. Uncle Jess was mad because Cousin Wilbur wouldn't be able to help him plant cotton that year. Anyway, nobody could do nothing now, and we didn't see Wilbur again until after the war was over. We were all anxious for Sunday to come so we could see the professor again. But early the next Sunday, we heard a lot of guns across the river toward Shiloh, and there was a lot of fighting, and a lot of people got killed, so we didn't get to go. The elixir Nancy's cousin Wilbur had drunk was a potent 140-proof whiskey in a bottle with a fancy label. The professor and others like him had found the perfect market for their elixirs and tonics as long as the alcohol lasted. Cousin Wilbur did not participate in the battle at Shiloh. He spent three years with the Union Army in Virginia and returned back home safely. In fact, Nancy's cousins and uncles were about evenly divided between their loyalties, and when the war was over, two generations would pass before all the family ties could be mended again. Nancy's farm was across the river from Pittsburgh Landing, and the first Sunday and Monday of April, wounded soldiers trudged past her yard on the way to Savannah. The toll at the Battle of Shiloh had been terrible, with more than 24,000 soldiers dead, wounded, and missing. She would never forget the thing she saw there. And she would never forget the day Cousin Wilbur joined the Yankee Army. On April 14, 1865, the war had been over for the past five days. Cheering throngs still crowded the streets of Washington, but at the Capitol, much was yet to be done. At 7 o'clock that morning, President Lincoln had breakfast with Mrs. Lincoln and their 21-year-old son, Robert. By 9 o'clock, the President was seeing visitors. At 10.30, he sent a messenger several blocks away to Ford's Theater to reserve the presidential box for the evening's performance of Our American Cousin. The day's business wore on. At 11, there was a meeting and General...